0: The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Morning church. Morning. Was that super loud? The sound is super loud see, this second row here is empty. Like never happens at 9 o'clock. So I'm just wondering who wants to come down and fill those chairs for me because... Uh, I'll wait. I'll wait. Oh. <laughs> Amazing. Thanks, Renee. Thanks, Sandy. You guys are the best. Mitch and Amanda are a little cheeky, but that's fine. <laughs> hey, uh, how many people have seen this book before? It's called The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. You've seen this book before or read it? Um, really, a great book. It's actually been around about twenty years now, but one of the most helpful books to kind of sort out, um, sort out uh, how we view love, how we receive love, how we give uh, love to one another. And the five love languages are. Let me give you these uh, gifts. Quality time, words of affirmation, acts of service, and physical touch. And what this essentially means is that um, if I have the love language of gifts and you give me a gift, then I'm going to know right away that person loves me. Or if I don't have the love language of gifts, maybe I have the love language of affirmation, um, and, and you speak words of affirmation and encouragement to me, I just go like, well, that person must just really love me because they're speaking my love language. Uh, if I have the love language of affirmation and I don't really have the love language of gifts, you give me a gift and I'm kind of like, eh, that's nice, they give me a gift. But I don't necessarily equate it with love. And, and each of us, so, some men are sitting here right now and looking at that list and just going, you know, my wife has all five of those. <laughs> and, I, and I get it. And that should make it easy for you, by the way, if she has all five because you can't miss No matter what you do. Um, But uh, primarily, we would say that most people have one of these, one primary gift, and maybe some secondary gifts along the way, but usually one is the one that speaks um, uh, more clearly to you and the way you speak more clearly uh, to others of, of your love for them. And this really has informed my marriage to Cheryl and it's informed my parenting uh, with, with our kids and, and it's informed really the way that I even approach uh, my relationships on our staff team. And, and this can be really helpful to everybody. But I was thinking about this and I don't want to talk about this any more than, than what I just did. And if you're interested in all of that, pick up the book. But, but, but here's what I, what I really got thinking about is how do we receive love from God? The, the way that he dispenses love for us Am I necessarily seeing it? Am I receiving it from him uh, in the way that I ought to? And uh, God's love, I think we could say this, God's love is perfectly expressed to me in every way according to the very particular needs that I have as an individual, that God's able to do that perfectly every single time. Listen, whether or not I recognize that. Whether or not I fully see it. And in Exodus 19 through 31, that's what we're going to look at today. Doing the math right away. Yes, that's 13 chapters of the book of Exodus. We're going to do this morning. A Christmas miracle before Christmas. (laughs) Well, in these chapters, we have a deeply moving expression of the love of God. Multiple expressions of the love of God. But listen, not necessarily in the way that we would automatically think. And God says to the people in uh, the early part of chapter 19, we're going to look at it, that they are his treasured possession. That he's going to make them his treasured possession. And the promise to them, they were the people of God becoming the people of God, were the people of God today. The, the, The sentiment from God is no less true today of you. That you very much are, and I want you to hear this loud and clear. If you don't believe it now, I hope you believe it by the end of this message, that you are, without a doubt, God's treasured possession. And everything he's going to say in these 13 chapters, every word of it is pointing to that fact. And I hope that you can hear it from him and receive it and know today, uh, beyond a doubt, that you are loved. So let's uh, pray and... um, And then we'll start working through what we have in front of us. Father, thank you for meeting with us and bless these moments together. God, we know that a passage as pivotal as this one in your word has huge implications for us. And so, God, I pray that you would show us all from your word and by your spirit the extent of your love for us. Again, I would pray that not one of us would leave here not knowing that you are passionately, devotedly, in love with us that we are your treasured possession thank you father for hearing this prayer and delighting to answer it in christ's name amen all right you'll get that god loves you when let's start with this uh you accept the boundaries uh, that he sets and i feel like this is the one that might cause us the most trouble to think about boundaries Uh, uh don't go there to think about that in terms of God being loving toward us. And, and here God is, is, in the next chapters, he's going to literally, literally lay down the law. Which we often use that expression, but usually in a very negative way. And God is going to lay down the law, and in doing so, he's communicating His love. And chapter 19 through to chapter 23 is really the explanation of the law of God for the first time being articulated to the people of God. And before we go there, let's establish the loving care that He has for us. Uh, Chapter 19, um, obviously, we're not going to read the entire passage this morning. We're going to just drop down into it. So I'd encourage you to do that on your own is read 19 uh, through to 31. Uh, but chapter, uh, four says, uh, chapter 19, verse 4 says this, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He carried them uh, through that time. He was the one who was strong and carrying them. And verse 5, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You will be my treasured possession He communicates his deep love for them and throughout this passage and throughout the scriptures really, we could understand this, that everything God does for his people is a selfless act of love intended for their good. Everything, everything in the word, everything he does for you, uh, toward you, around you, everything he gives you, all of it is a selfless act of love. Intended for your good. We can see this now. Uh, God uh, set some boundaries before the delivery of the law. Verse um, 11 says this. Um, actually, go back uh, to verse uh, 10 and just a little bit before that. In fact, at the beginning of the paragraph, if you, have, if you have the ESV, when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. And let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Now this is going to be an awesome thing. We're going to see a description of it in just a moment. But before that can happen, God needs to set out some boundaries for them. And verse 12 says, and you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. And he goes on to say, you're going to have to kill that person if they cross the boundary. Now that seems awfully harsh to us, but God is really saying that if you go on the mountain and you approach the Lord as he's descending in his glory, your sinfulness and God's holiness is this this incompatible clash. It's going to cause people to die. In the presence of a holy God, they'll be consumed by him. So the limits are set and the warning is made and the people are told, don't cross the boundary or you'll hurt yourself. You'll die. God's coming in power and glory. Look at verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. Uh, No doubt there was some trembling. We would tremble if, if that were to happen here. It trembled because of the holiness of God. The boundary was set up for their protection. And we need to understand that boundaries that God sets up for us today are really no different. They're for our protection. Boundaries are not intended to oppress or to make you miserable. But to point out where you're safe and where you're not. Boundaries are really the practical communication of God's love for you. The simplest illustration of this is if you're the parent of a young child or you parented a a young child, you just know if you have a fireplace in your home that's right at hand level, the kids are crawling around and walking around, and you just, every time they come anywhere near the fireplace, what do you say? What's the word you say? Hot. Hot. Why is that not the first word a child learns? Right? It's hot. It's hot. And the thing is you don't say it when they're coming like immediately beside it. You begin to to break out the warnings. You begin to say something at a very safe distance away from the fireplace so there's not even the threat that they're going to trip and fall into it. Why do we do that? Because we mean to oppress our children and we don't want them to enjoy the fire? To make their life miserable? No, we do it, why? To keep them safe. Because we know there are boundaries that need to be set so they won't, they won't hurt themselves. And I love really the very simple way that Pastor James McDonald says this. When God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. And the threat on that mountain was really a metaphor for the people so they would understand that God's law was not something to be trifled with. We're going to look at the Ten Commandments in a little bit of detail and and then all the other laws that follow in the ensuing chapters, they're all meant as a boundary against being hurt. You're safe here. You're not safe over here. And um, let's just focus on the Ten for a few minutes, but I I think we have this, this perspective of the Ten Commandments that it's literally just a list of do's and don'ts. And there are people who think the Christian life or life of a follower of Christ is really all about just keeping the list. We couldn't be any more wrong in believing that. We think of the Ten Commandments kind of one-dimensionally, again, as a list of do's and don'ts. And in fact, it's four dimensions that we need to look at when we see the Ten Commandments. There are really four things that God is communicating through this most famous of all lists, Let me give these to you, but don't feel like you need to take notes all the way through this because I've made up a chart. We're going to kind of work through some of it, not all of it, and these are available on the table at the back, and they're also going to be on the sermon resource page on the website. So you can get this after, so don't feel You can just listen right now, and you'll get all of this later. Here's the four things that the Ten Commandments do for us. Number one, they reveal God's character. They're saying something about who he is. God is saying, you don't know me very well yet. Let me tell you who I am by giving you this list of ten things that are super important to me. All right, so they're a revealing of the character of God. Secondly, I'm going to say this about the Ten Commandments. They mean more than what they're saying. They're communicating more than just the do or don't. In fact, the the thing about the Ten Commandments is eight of the ten are are stated negatively, which isn't exactly the best way to communicate things with all due respect to the Lord. They're negative. But really, there's very much a positive thing that comes out of the negative. That's what I mean by saying that they're communicating more than what they say. And I'll illustrate this in just a moment. We're going to work through a couple of them. Here's the third thing. They warn us about the consequences of not following his ways. And the, thir- the hurt that actually threatens us if we step over the boundary. Okay, so they're, they're a warning to us. And then fourth, <laughs> so encouraging, they're an impossible standard. They are an impossible standard to keep. In fact, people who say, you know, I know that I'm good with God because I keep the Ten Commandments are guilty of the Ninth Commandment. You know where I'm going with that. No, you haven't kept the Ten Commandments. No one's able to keep the Ten Commandments. In fact, jot down this reference, Romans uh, 4 and 5. If you read those two chapters of Romans, you're going to see what the Apostle Paul says about the law, about the entirety of the law, which includes the Ten Commandments. And he really says that the law was given for this reason, to, to increase the trespass. That's what he says. In other words, God gave the law so that we would know where the boundaries are so that we could actually be saved because we are sinners but there was nothing written down to actually define what sin was. God says, okay, I'll define it for you so that you'll know categorically you are sinners and therefore you'll know that you actually need a savior. Without the law, without it being written down, we'd all be wondering, I wonder if that's sinful or not. God says, I'll make it clear to you. That's what the, That's what the law does for us. And so those are the four things. We're going to see all of that. So here's how that plays out. This plays out. Let's work through a couple of examples uh, through the uh, Ten Commandments. These are, of course, in chapter 20, beginning at verse 3. The first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. So the commandment is no other gods. And what God is saying about himself is he's the only God. He's talking about the exclusiveness of who he is. Uh, You can go ahead and worship some other small G God. And there are literally, if you just think about Hinduism, there are literally hundreds of millions of different small G gods. But none of them are legit. None of them are real. There is only one. That's what God's saying here. I'm, I'm not just one God among many. I'm the only one. What that means, uh, how it means more than what it says is that I have to actively and passionately and exclusively worship this God. It isn't enough just to acknowledge there is only one God. It's actually an appeal to me to actually devote my life to the worship of this one and only God. And the warning it communicates is that worshiping other gods severs my relationship with the one true God. If I go after a different God, then I am not for this one. I can't have it both ways. And the impossibility of it is this. I have a divided heart. And it's so hard for me to be exclusive to one. And even if I am a follower of Christ, I can find myself on almost any day of the week being drawn away to the worship of some other small G God in my life. And I see a number of you nodding, so you know what I'm talking about. Well, the second commandment, no idols, is really like it. Um, The first commandment is the object of our worship. Uh, The second commandment is about the mode of our worship. The first about the who of our worship. The second commandment, the how of our worship. He wants me to worship him in a specific way. That's what God is saying about himself. You, You can't just make this up. There's a certain way that I want you to approach me. And when you look at the meticulous detail, maybe you've read Exodus before and you go like, why all the detail about the tabernacle? Why all the particulars about the sacrificial system? Why was it so particular? Because God had a certain way that he wanted his people to approach him. That's what God's saying about himself, how it means more than what it says. I must learn how to worship him according to his word. I can't make this up. I run across followers of Christ all the time who are, who are uh, saying that it's okay to be a believer. I believe in God. I'm just not uh, willing to be part of a church. I'm going, well, I, I don't really think you have that option. There are no uh, lone wolf uh, believers in the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus Christ says that he loves the church, gave himself for it, that he's the head of the church, that the local church is the visible manifestation of the global or universal church. I just don't think you have an option. You can't make it up. You can't just say, "Hey, I'm going to just go off into the woods and worship as I walk through the woods." That's a good thing to do, but it doesn't replace this. And I get that this is a messed up crew. I've been pastoring uh, this church long enough to know that this is a pretty messed up place. I get you tell me the church is imperfect. You're telling me? I know that. It's filled with people. We mess up all the time. We mess up with each other. We mess up with the Lord. That's great. We're all broken. I figured it out. It's it's Come join. You'll be perfect. (laughs) Can't just make it up. The warning, it communicates anything I cherish more than God is an idol. It shows where my heart is. And the impossibility of it is this. I, I just struggle day by day to worship in spirit and truth. I really do. There's so many distractions in my life. And I... Often want to do it my way, not his. Are you getting this? Is it coming together? How the Ten Commandments are communicating far more than a list of do's and don'ts. Third, the uh, third commandment, the misuse of the Lord's name, it's in verse seven. Shall not take the the name of the Lord your God in vain. And we've most often, um, we've most often associated this with cussing. Not, it's not really about cussing. It's more about using his name flippantly. And what God's really saying about himself is that, that I want honor to come my way, that I am the creator and the God. I am your savior. I'm the one who loves you. No one else exists, and I, honor should come this way, and you ought, ought to be honoring me. And what it means, why it means, or how it means more than what it says, I must profess this isn't just about not saying certain words. We're not taking this verse and applying it to you know an F-bomb or an S-word. It's, it's not even exclusively about swear words that include the Lord's name, which is abhorrent to me and ought to be abhorrent to you. But we limit it so much if we just keep it in that little bracket. And I think we're, we may never use the Lord's name as a curse word, But we're often guilty of using his name flippantly. Saying we're going to do things in his name that we never do. That's this commandment. So how it means more than what it says. I have to profess my devotion to the Lord which we've sought to do here today. I must speak and sing his praises. I must tell others about him. We use the name of the Lord vainly when we say we're a follower of Christ but we never have any desire to actually speak of him. The warning it communicates is that the words that do come out of my mouth are a reflection of what's in my heart. That would be frightening to some of us who make our living speaking or who speak a lot, talk a lot. Maybe you're a quieter person like me. Oh, you detected the sarcasm, did you? The impossibility of it is the tongue is a restless evil. How many of us know that truth? All right, let's, um, the fourth commandment is take a Sabbath rest. The fifth commandment is honor your parents. The sixth commandment is no murdering. We could say a lot about all of those. It'll all be on the handout. The seventh commandment, no adultery. Let's talk about this. Verse 14 says, simply, you shall not commit adultery. And what God is saying about himself here is that he is one, and the male and female are both created in his image. That male and female together are a more perfect representation of the image of God. And how it means more than what it's saying here is that I must see sex as holy and beautiful and for marriage. And my covenant relationship is a picture of oneness. And that says something about the Lord. And the warning it communicates is that sex outside of monogamous heterosexual marriage produces a world of hurt. That sex outside of the boundaries that God has provided us is a violation of the image of God that He has made us. And in, inside these boundaries, we're safe. And I don't mean to—I don't mean to point out anybody's hurt or make you feel worse than maybe you already feel about some of these things. And I would say that the grace of God is sufficient for all of this, and where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, amen? It abounds all the more, and God is forgiving and loving towards you, and his mercy is abundant and free. I say all of that, but it's important to say that some of us, and I would say this as a warning perhaps to others, that uh, those here who have had multiple sexual partners will know this, that the echoes of all of those sexual relationships stay with you, that even if you are in a faithful, devoted marriage today, the echoes remain, the shadows remain. And that's why God says, just inside marriage, keep it for inside marriage and you're not going to have all of that baggage carrying into marriage. I hope I don't need to tell you that the solution to the, se- the problem of sexually transmitted diseases, the solution to that is don't have sex until you're married if both parties commit to that and you only ever have sex inside your marriage, you're never ever going to have to worry about an STD. There's a world of hurt outside of the boundaries that God sets for us. We're speaking of adultery. How many wrecked marriages, how many children of divorce carrying around the pain and hurt and the ongoing consequences of failed relationships. I I recognize that the kind of, of teaching that I'm talking about right now, I had a conversation not two weeks ago with someone who was a visitor to our church and said, do you really believe this? Is this really your sexual ethic? And I said, it really is. And I get that it sets us out from the society and makes us weird. I get it. But God set the boundaries, and he said, inside here, safety, outside. A world of hurt, and I would just say this, the impossibility of it in the highly sexualized culture in which we live, it is all but impossible not to lust, not to fall into some kind of sexual sin. Certainly, we can find victory over this over time, but no one's going through an entire life not falling victim to this in some way. Let's just deal with this, Alas, last one, no stealing, no lying, no coveting of the last three, no stealing. Verse 15. What God is saying about himself is that um, he owns everything in heaven and on earth. If you steal from someone else, you're stealing from him. He owns it all. And how it means more than what it says. I must respect the property of others and hold loosely to what I own. I said to Cheryl, even before I kind of got to this and knew that this was the way I was going to present it, I said to Cheryl just this week, you know, we own more than half our house now, which is always a big deal, right? If you're a homeowner and you're looking at your mortgage statements, you go, well, like, we own more than half our house. How cool is that? The bank owns the other, whatever, 40% of it right now. But, but it's that whole idea that we own it, that somehow it's mine. That Cheryl and I together have been making these mortgage payments all of these years. And we've been working hard to kind of be able to do that. And on that day, we hope to burn the mortgage and say, now this house is ours. And in fact, we know it is not ours. That it's the Lord's. That by his grace, he's allowed us to own this home own the cars we have, whatever retirement um, funds we've set aside, whatever we have, all the possessions in the house, none of it is mine or Cheryl's. It's, it's the Lord's. He owns all of it. At best, we're stewarding it and managing it. So I have to respect the property of others, hold loosely to what I own, and the warning it communicates is that hoarding and stealing, it's just self-destructive, and it violates the fact it's stealing from the Lord. The impossibility of it is I do think I own what I have and I think I've worked hard for it and I often hoard things and I'm not very good at sharing at times. Well, I hope that's helpful to you and um, we could spend a lot more time on all of that and all that to say when you accept the boundaries that God has set for you, I hope you get that God loves you. I hope that you get that God loves you. Now, there's no way we're getting through this message if I spend that amount of time on the last four points. Pray for me. It's also true that God loves you when you believe the promises that he's made. The promise to the Jews in Sinai was about acquiring the promised land. We're over in chapter 23 now. He would made them a promise of of um, acquiring the promised land. Of course, he's set before us the promise of eternity, that eternal promised land of glory and living with him for all eternity. We are bound for glory. And here are some promises that he makes to them here. Uh, Verse 20 of chapter 23, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on your way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Go down to verse 29. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. Now, three promises that God makes in these verses. Let me give these uh, to you. Uh, He's gonna keep you safe along the way. I want you to think about your journey. All of this is in the context of their journey. It's no different for us. Uh, Whatever God has for you, whatever's coming up along the way, he's going to keep you safe along the way. He's going to send his angels to guard you. His Holy Spirit is going to be with you. He's going to, if you stay on the journey, not turning to the right or the left, God's going to be with you every step, no matter what circumstances you face, no matter how dangerous it's going to seem to you. God's going to keep you safe on the way. He's never going to let you out of his sight. And he's going to conduct you right to the very end when you will be in his presence forever. That's one great promise, wouldn't you say? And a second promise, he's going to fight uh, their battles. He says he's going to fight their battles. He's going to fight your battles too. Verse 22. Whatever enemy comes against you, it's God's enemy. Whatever adversary you face, it's God's adversary. God's going to keep you safe. He's going to protect you from your enemies and fight your battles. And third, he's going to give Them, the people of Israel, and you, only what you can handle along the way. He's never going to give you so much that you're going to be overwhelmed by that. He only gave them so much of the land. He gave it to them piece by piece because he knew they weren't numerous enough to inhabit the entire land that God was providing them. And if all of the people had been pushed out miraculously by the Lord and the Jews had come in, they, they, they would have been so sparsely scattered across the whole land. There's no way they could have occupied it. And God knows that. God's gonna give you only what you can handle today. He's not gonna give you any more than that. He's not going to overwhelm you. He's going to keep you and give you only what you can handle in the immediate. Now having someone promise you these things is as great as these really are. Wouldn't you say that that's an amazing communication of his love? If we could believe the promises of God, then we would be saying to the Lord, we get that you love us. There's no doubt about it. 2 Corinthians 1.20. All the promises of God in him are yes. And in him, amen. So be it. It's going to happen. Take it to the bank. God's made the promise. Then look at this one. Commit to the covenant that he's established. You'll get that God loves you when you commit to the covenant that he's established. There's already been some talk about covenant. We're over in chapter 24 now. But after giving of the law, which has already happened. And again, I'm going to encourage you to read that on your own. He gives them the law. But now he needs to affirm the relationship. He's going to establish a covenant with the people. Verses 7 and 8 here of chapter 24 he took the book of the covenant, this is Moses, and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So God said everything. He's laid out the law. And then the people make their pledge to establish the covenant. And it's, there's a lot of bravado here. There's a lot of maybe just like aspiration. We really want to do this. Of course, we know the story. If you've read it, if, you, if you've read ahead, you know that how, how good are they at keeping this? Yeah, Not not very. It's not unlike us. That we make a pledge to the Lord. We're going to follow you, Lord. We're all in. Pledging our life to you. Where you go, I'm going to follow you. And then then it becomes a little harder. And we fail. Moses took the blood, verse 18. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. And he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with With all these words. And the covenant was established. With the people. Now I would just say. We're not especially good at covenants. In fact I I think most of us. Would be hard pressed to really understand. What a covenant really is. So let's spend a moment there. And understand the concept of covenant. What God is really saying to us. A covenant is. It's not a contract. That's not a synonym for covenant. A contract is really uh, two people coming together, two parties coming together, and having a list of terms that they're both going to fulfill. And if one party does not fulfill the terms of the contract, then the contract is, is rendered void. Okay, It's no longer in effect. The contract is, is broken. And that's not what we're talking about here. A covenant's not a contract between two parties, whereby if one fails to fulfill the terms, the contract is void. But rather that of a one-sided bond. A covenant, even in human relationships, can sometimes refer to a one-party guarantee in which a more favored person gives a less favored person the advantage of remaining in the covenant. Now, this doesn't mean that there aren't obligations. There are still obligations that go both ways. In the divine covenant with God, there's no doubt that we're still required. The obligations we have are still required to be obedient. We're still required to exercise a faith in the Lord. But even obedience and faith, they point to a salvation whose benefits are guaranteed by God. God himself guarantees both sides of the covenant. As a matter of fact, they're secured by Jesus Christ that through him, the covenants are act, the full covenant is actually fulfilled. And what, I, what I mean by this is, is God's the one fulfilling the covenant top to bottom. We enter into the covenant and the covenant is established so that even when we fail to fulfill the terms of faith and obedience, God still wraps us up inside the covenant God is the one party giving a guarantee to the whole thing. And so we remain in this covenant relationship. And I'm grateful to Herman Ritterboss. I was just doing some reading on this. He really helped me form my thoughts around all of that. The covenant relationship we have with God, we would say, and I hope you would agree with this, the covenant relationship we have with God is pretty one sided. It's pretty one sided. He guarantees it. And he says it's not severable. That once you become a follower of Jesus Christ and make your declaration as the people did here, it's not severable. We can't be excluded from the covenant. It's really based on an understanding of the Hebrew word chesed. The chesed of God is the covenant faithfulness of our God that is rooted in his steadfast, everlasting love for his people. And it was sealed here in verse 8 by the blood being sprinkled on the people. No small allusion to the fact that our covenant is sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ, shed on the cross for us, and remembered in the Lord's table, which we're going to celebrate in a few moments that we drink the blood of the new covenant, reaffirming, sealing, remembering the covenant that God has made for us, the covenant that saves us. Now I hope you see in that that God loves you, that he's willing to do that. And before we leave this, and I think it's gonna help us to clarify it even a little bit more, but also show that it has some in. Implications in terms of a couple of human relationship covenants that we have that of marriage, and let me speak of marriage and church membership, those uh, two things. Church membership, let let me start with this one. We have a covenant here at Harvest, and some of you who have been members for a long time would never have seen this, not stated in this way, but we've really revised this more recently, and those of you who are newer members would know this. I'm not expecting you to be able to read that, but we've, in the covenant, we have obligations for the member, and we have obligations for the elders with regard to the member, the elders representative of the church. And both sides, in in some respect, it kind of looks contractual because both sides have obligations within uh, within the covenant. The same thing would be true of marriage, that a husband and wife stand before witnesses and before uh, the pastor, and they recite their vows to one another, and they declare themselves to be in a covenant relationship as of that moment. And each of them has obligations within that. The husband, if we're just picking up on Ephesians 5, the husband to love his wife, the wife to submit and respect her, to, res- submit to and respect her husband. Those obligations are there, biblical obligations. And so we understand that in some respect, it's a, it sounds contractual. We enter into these relationships more contractually where each party has certain obligations to fulfill for the relationship to mean anything and for it to move forward successfully. But... Listen, this is the part that makes it sound more like the relationship between us and God. When one or both parties inevitably fall short in fulfilling their contractual obligations, the other party approaches the relationship at that that point more from a covenantal standpoint. Unilateral perspective whereby they persevere in the relationship so that it doesn't fall apart. In other words if in a marriage a husband sees that his wife is not fulfilling her role as a wife or she steps out and she has a relationship with another. Now, according to the more contractual aspects of of what we do in marriage and according to what the word of God says, he would have every right to divorce his wife, to say that the the covenant was, was severed and it's over. But if he acts in a more divine way, if he sees the covenant as representing at times this one-party guarantee. Then he wraps the covenant around his wife and he says, even though this violation has occurred, I'm going to work for this marriage. We're going to keep this marriage together. We're going to honor together the covenant, even if it's a little one-sided right now. That applies to church membership. It applies inside marriage. It applies to any covenant. And really the call upon us is this to be more divine, to be more like the Lord in how we approach all of these relationships. It's what God does for us. It's what we ought to be aiming to do together as we grow in Christ's likeness, as we seek to become more and more like him. So God wants you to be committed to the covenant relationship with him by faith and obedience to him, and he wants that because he loves you, and I, I hope you get that. Ready for the next one? All right? Feel like you've had enough? I kind of feel like we've had enough, but I got two more to go, so. A drawdown on the access that he's provided. Uh, The next large section, and this really goes from chapter 25 through 31, we see uh, building plans and instructions on how to approach worship. And sometimes if you've read this and you just go, it seems kind of dry, just all this it's all this construction and it's all this decorating. And I would just say that the popularity of uh, HDTV and all those shows where they're doing renos and rebuilding homes, this is really just HGTV way before there was that. And so if you love all of those shows, you're going to love these chapters building plans, instructions on how to approach worship. And God's intent here is to provide the people with access to Him. How do we, He's teaching them, how do we worship? How How do we pray to Him? How do we speak to Him? And notice how it plays out here in the text, how it plays out for us as individuals. Again, chapter 25, the first few verses here. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel. That they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns. And fine twined linen. Goat's hair. Tanned rams, skins. Goat skins. Acacia wood. Oil for the lamb. Spices for the anointing oil. And for the fragrant incense. Onyx stones and stones for setting. For the ephod and for the breast piece. That's part of the priestly garments. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. So this is how this plays out. The people wanted access to God. God wanted to provide it for them, but they needed to start out by doing this, giving whatever they needed to give, they needed to do that in order to get access to him. And God is really saying to us, you want that? Then be prepared to give whatever you need to give to get it. Give your very life to this. And the people give this offering. It literally was a physical offering. We need your gold. We need your jewels. We we need your your fine linens. We need everything to be able to create the tabernacle. We don't have any resources. There's nothing in the bank. Uh, if, If you don't give it, we're not able to build it. So they cry out for this offering, and we're going to talk about this before the series is done. But a crazy thing happens. And the people actually give more than what's required. Later in Exodus, we're going to look at this. They give more than what's required. And Moses actually has to go back to the people and say to them this words that have never been spoken in a church before <laughs> Stop giving. Stop giving. Imagine how crazy it would be here at Harvest if this happened. If, if we set out our budget for the year and by the end of November we had met our budget and all our obligations and we had a little bit of extra and we came to you in December and said, here's what's happening in December. We're not taking an offering in all of December. Imagine. Imagine, imagine instead of the more campaign, we had the less campaign. <laughs> right? Imagine. It could happen. It could happen. Crazy. They gave whatever they needed to give in order to make this happen. By the way, the elders are talking a lot about twenty sixteen and what we need to do, and it's time, fourteen and plus years that we haven't had our own facility, it's time. Would you agree? So we're doing these little offerings here at the end of the year. These are little offerings. This hundred and twenty five thousand, that's nothing. It's nothing. Half a million dollars if we get that extra hundred, it's nothing the big one's coming in 2016 the elders are talking about it right now and i am going to say to you that if you don't want to be part of something like that you got a few months to get out <laughs> just quietly slip out the door because it's coming and and we're going to we're going to ask for an offering and we're going to ask for an exodus 25 offering it's all about the mission access to God. We've got it. We, we don't want to be complacent with that. We've got a mission to let other people have access to God. What's the best way for us to do that? That's what we're trying to figure out. So let's be on the mission. Give whatever they They gave whatever they needed to get, give. And, and then they did whatever they needed to do um, over to chapter uh, 31 now. See how we're skipping all of this? And again, that's amazing reading through all of that. But then in chapter 31 there's really these craftsmen and um, God says, verse 3, I've filled this man with the spirit of God and with the ability and intelligence and knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and carving wood, uh, to work in every craft. He gave these men abilities. He's given us abilities and talents and strengths and passions and abilities, all these things that he's given to us. And these craftsmen came and they applied their skill to the building of the tabernacle. It was an awesome thing. The thing about the tabernacle is this, this place of access to God called the tent of meeting. All of the implements that they were going to make, the clothing the priests would wear, and the the glorious detail of the tabernacle points in every respect to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's prophetic of the access, access that we have through Christ himself. And we don't have time to break down every element of the tabernacle. It, it's really quite amazing, but these three will make the point. The table for the bread of the presence, of course, points to Jesus Christ as the bread of life. The golden lampstand in the midst of the tabernacle presents Jesus as the light of the world. The bronze altar where the sacrifices would be made. All of those goats and lambs that are brought point to Jesus Christ as the final and ultimate lamb of God. The final sacrifice for our sins whereby we would all have access to his salvation. All of that pointing to the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us to make a path to God. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And Jesus, in fact, the veil separating the holy of holies from the holy place, while he was on the cross and uttering his final words and giving his spirit up, The veil in the temple that separated those two places was torn in two. And the access that God had provided for His people would now be even more readily available to those under the new covenant. That our access to God is direct without need of a temple or a sacrifice. That we would simply be able to call out in the name of Jesus Christ and have access to our Father. How could we not see that he loves us in doing all of that for us? And finally this, when you enjoy the rest he offers, you'll get that God loves you. In chapter 31, 12 through 18, he lays out the plan for the seventh day as yet another sign of the covenant and one that brings such significant benefit to the people. And I want us to think about rest for a moment and what God provides for us. Do you know that every other religion of the world makes you work so tirelessly to earn your salvation? And the concept of rest is non-existent, but not in Christ. Imagine a God who says to us, you don't have to work today. Work six days, but you don't have to work today. In fact, stop working and rest and reflect and consider And rejuvenate yourself and recharge yourself. You don't have to work today, just rest. Imagine a God who says you don't have to strive after your salvation, just rest in me. Imagine a God who says you don't have to worry about your future, rest. Imagine a God who says you don't have to fear your circumstances, just rest. Rest in me. And all of this resting that God provides us points to that eternal and final rest that we have. Can't wait to get there and be with my God. Rest in me, he says. And in all that, he says, I love you. I love you. And I hope you get that today. I hope you get that God loves you. Probably the greatest picture of that is what we get to do now in the remembering of the Lord's sacrifice for us through the Lord's table. We heard already that the new covenant was sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ and he gave us this table to remember that and to be grateful for what we have in him. So I'm gonna invite the servers to come up right now and to prepare to serve the elements and uh, I'm gonna pray for us in just a moment before they start serving. But if you're uh, new to us here at Harvest, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're welcome to take part in this time. The tray's gonna come around uh, where you're sitting and in each of the slots are two cups stacked together. Uh, the bottom one has the bread in it and the top one has the juice in it. Just take both those out and just hold on to it until everybody's been served and then I'll lead us to take it together. Let me pray for us and then the servers will begin. Father, thank you. Uh, For this time. And Father, again, let me just say how grateful we are for your love for us. It certainly transcends any love that we have for you. Thank you for binding us together in covenant. For uh, so much of the time, Father, it seems like it's very one sided. It's all about what you've done for us. And Father, so thank you for that. And thank you for this time of remembrance where we reflect again on the cross of Christ and the sacrifice that he's made for us. Thank you for his a body given, for his blood shed for us. And Father, bless this time. Fill this room with your presence and pour out your grace in these moments. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at harvestberry.ca. And remember, You are loved.